Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. From Nehemiah 1, 1 of Kislev, as in Susa, my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them, the remnant there in the province, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is the word of the Lord. Um, dude, I gotta move this thing. It feels like, you're, it's too close. It's like when your kids are like right in your bed and their face is right next to you, like, just get away from me. That's what it's like. Um, here we go, start Nehemiah. Uh, right now, three, two, one, go. Let me ask you this, have you ever taken on a project, a massive project, a project so big, just at the thought of it, you get overwhelmed by everything that's required in order to bring it to completion? Whether it's planning a big event, hosting a party at your home, doing a home renovation, or I get this way when I think about having to do taxes. There's just so much to do. You've got no idea where to start. The, the list is compiling and growing and growing, and it's almost so overwhelming that like, you just kind of stall out. Now, Martin Luther had, a, had an interesting approach uh, when he came up against something like this, when, when there was a, a massive volume of work for him to do. He says this, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I've got so much to do that I must spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, this seems counterintuitive to us as people who live in a highly productive society. Like a lot of our value gets derived from your output, what you can accomplish. And so the idea of like in our fallen minds, thinking about, oh, I've got to carve out three hours to pray. I think about how far back that puts me. It seems counterintuitive to us. But we see this pattern among godly men and women. 
We actually see this in the story of Nehemiah, who was a reformer who predated Luther. And he shared the same sentiment. He was called by God to take on a massive project, as we'll see as this sermon series unfolds. And really, the whole scope of it is to rebuild the infrastructure of the city of Jerusalem, to put up walls and gates and see that the city would be fortified. But before he starts this work with real project, it has a real punch list, there's, there's real tasks that need to be completed in order to see to the project's end. Before he does any of that, Nehemiah does the pre-work of fasting and prayer. If you've been with us for the last six weeks, uh, you'll remember that we've spent the last couple months on, our, on the mission of Sacred City Church. We're establishing, like, here's the mission that God has put before us, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And like Nehemiah, though it's not a one-for-one, one, you know, uh, thing here, but like Nehemiah, where he's called to rebuild the ruins, the church, Sacred City Church, has been called to renew the city. We do this by making disciples of all nations, starting with our households and planting gospel-centered, Bible-believing churches. Now, this is a massive undertaking for us to do. It's a, huge, it's a huge mission. And adding to the difficulty of our church's mission is the fact that we exist in a culture that has a negative disposition, a negative attitude towards faithful Christian living. Now, our culture likes sort of wishy-washy Christianity, the kind of Christianity that can take and leave bits and pieces of the Bible that fits whatever the cultural narrative is. But for faithful Bible-believing people, the people who say, my, my, my life is built on nothing less than the word of God, than Jesus, we're gonna find ourselves at opposition with the world. And with that opposition, we start to wonder, how could we possibly make any headway in this thing? How are we going to see any kind of progress in making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city? Now, this is why the story of Nehemiah is so helpful for us today. If we want to see progress in the mission that God has called us to, we have to take a note from Luther and from Nehemiah and realize that prayer precedes progress. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain, as Psalm 127 says. The real work of renewing the city, the real work of rebuilding the ruins starts with prayer. That's the first thing. Now, I want to show you this morning the kind of prayer that it has to start with is a kind of prayer that I believe is underutilized in the church. And when we don't ask, we don't receive. So I want to invite us this morning into this kind of prayer that the reformers pray, that Nehemiah, that Luther, this kind of prayer, this certain type. Now, before I get to what this prayer life looks like, um, as we start a new book of the Bible, usually we do this, is you gotta do the setup. We gotta, gotta put the, the, the book of the Bible within the context of God's historical narrative, the story of redemption that he's telling. Now, the book of Nehemiah is actually part two of another book, Ezra, which were actually at one point, one, one combined book. We didn't, we didn't have two books. It wasn't Ezra and Nehemiah like we have in our book. Uh, it, it was one, one scroll for that. And so in order to set up Nehemiah, we got to go back and recap Ezra. 
But in order to recap Ezra, we have to go back to First and Second Chronicles and recap that, which actually summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament. So, you know, small feat this morning, okay? But from First Chronicles, the very first word in First Chronicles is Adam. Starts at the beginning. And then the last word of Chronicles is the same first words of Ezra, and then Ezra spills in to Nehemiah. It's all, it's all united. It's one big, long, connected story that's all moving to the same end. We have to see this. We have to see the story framed up in its context. And because I gave you five extra minutes this morning to filter in here for you know, the beginning of the service here, you gotta give me five minutes here as I go through the whole Old Testament, okay? The story starts with Eden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God made, and it was good, and he made man, and it was very good. And God placed man, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, this place of, of, of blissful paradise. Now, Eden functioned as the first temple that humanity has ever known. Eden is the temple not made of human hands, but made by God. And in this place, the significance of the temple is, is a place for God's people and God's presence. And here in Eden, we see all of those pieces. God is present here in this locale of Eden with his people. And unfortunately, this setup doesn't last very long. By Genesis chapter 3, Eden is lost when Adam and Eve find themselves rebelling against God. They, they, they are tempted by the serpent and they eat from the fruit, eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God prohibited them to eat. And because of this, God had to escort them out of Eden. The paradise was lost. They lost their place. And as they lost their place, the sense of God's presence also became more spotty. Where they once walked with God in the cool of day, now there's this, this separation that they felt because of, of their sin. And as the story progresses, we, we come across a man named Abraham, who God, desiring to have a people for himself, says, I chose you, not by anything that you've done, because Abraham, if you don't know the story, came from a pagan background. And God said, I choose you, and I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to the nations. So God calls to himself a man named Abraham. He, he gives him a promise. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a multitude of children. So God's saying, I'm going to create a people out of you, the father of many nations. He says, I'm going to give you a place. And he promised him God's presence to be with him. Now, as this promise is made, it is a delayed fulfillment. God's people do multiply. You see this multiplication of them. They grow strong and mighty, but they find themselves in Egyptian slavery. And it's in this place, this cruel slavery, that God's people are crying out for help. They feel abandoned. They feel cut off. They've got a really hard existence. So God raises up another man named Moses to deliver them out of the hand of Pharaoh and bring them into the promised land. So here we see the story where God, God's people are being collected and they're being brought out. He says, hey, there's a promised land for you. I'm gonna take you to that land. And there's this interim period, 40 years of the wilderness where, where they're kind of wandering around, not quite getting to the promised land. But eventually they arrive. 
Now, in the midst of their wandering, God establishes his presence among his people in the tabernacle. It was this tent, portable tent. It's like where God lived. There would be a pillar of smoke or fire, depending on the time of day, that would represent God's presence right there in the center of the camp, right there among his people. And when God brought his people into the promised land, the temporary tabernacle now moved, was, uh, was done away with. Solomon took the plans of his father, David, and built a glorious temple, a place where the presence of God would dwell. So here, as they come to Jerusalem, you've got God's people who are collected in the place of Jerusalem, and God's presence is dwelling among them in the temple. So you see it, right? The people, the place, the presence. People, place, presence. Repeated over and over and over. Now, this this lasts for a good stretch. The kingdom is built, right? Jerusalem is established as the city of God, city of David. Um, the kings are building temples. The priests are offering sacrifices. Things are, are functioning in a way that God intended them to do, granted that they're living under the curse of sin. And they have a good stretch at this for a while, but it's not long before the same issue that happened in Eden came down to Jerusalem. The people of God cherished God's blessings. They, they saw the generosity of God to give them, uh, to multiply their people, to give them a place, to have the presence of God. But in cherishing the blessings, they forgot to honor God as the giver of those gifts. The Puritan Cotton Mather says it this way, faithfulness begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. They forgot. God blessed them tremendously, yet they lost sight of the giver of those good gifts. Now, this is a theme that, that when we read through the story of Israel, this is something that most of us could say, oh, I see that happening. That theme gets repeated in my life. I cry out for God, I want God so bad, but I want God so that I'll get this. And as soon as I get this, I forget about God. We try to use God as a stepping stone. When we do that, it won't go well for us because those good gifts that God gives us then become idols and idols enslave us. It leads to a subhuman existence. Only the right worship of God can elevate us to the kind of glory God has intended for mankind. Now, as God's people forgot about God, God brought about their judgment. Now, a lot of people say, well, how could it be that God would judge his people? Well, it's because God loves his people that he disciplines them. It's because the father loves his child that he disciplines him. He trains him in righteousness. And so God being the good father that he is, he judges, he disciplines Israel, but he does so through a pagan nation called Babylon. Babylon rises to power, sweeps through the whole region of Judah, and topples Jerusalem. And while they're there in Jerusalem, they ransack the city. The temple is defiled and destroyed. The walls are, are toppled down. The gates are burned. It just lies in this rubble ash heap. And all of the people, all of the mighty men of valor get swept away into Babylonian exile. 
Now this is here, right, right here in this part of the story is where we're introduced to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's right here in the exile. As God's people are exiled in this pagan land, we still see that they're God's people, right? They have, they're God's covenant people. That's, that's clear through both Ezra and Nehemiah and all of the Old Testament that that's true. But here in this moment, they have no place. They're in exile. The place that they once had is in ruins. And the presence of God is a big question mark. They're not exactly sure. Now, in this story, as we start Ezra, we see that God is attentive to what's going on. God stirs up the spirit of men, both the king of Babylon, to, to send people back and the men to sponsor and the men to actually go to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the ruins, starting with the temple. And if you're familiar with the, the, the furniture and the sort of aesthetics of the temple, you know that the temple has, it's got echoes of Eden. It's imagery that points to this garden, this paradise that's been lost. And so God sends his people back to rebuild this temple. And here is another shot for God's people to return to their place and hopefully they will find God's presence there with them. Now Ezra and Nehemiah happens in three movements. It's, it's one story in three movements. Um, in, in the book of Ezra, it covers movements one and two. Movement one is Ezra's, Ezra chapters one through six. Um, they're led by a man named Zerubbabel. Um, who is sent back, he goes, he is, is, is commissioned to build an altar so sacrifices can resume unto God. And as he builds an altar, then eventually they build a temple. There was a whole story of fiasco with that. But here with Zerubbabel, what they start to see is worship is restored among God's people. Movement two comes through Ezra chapter seven through 10, when Ezra, who is a scribe of the law, who's basically a lawyer of God's word, is sent back to Jerusalem to teach the law of Moses to God's people. So he's, he's sent back with the Old Testament Bible saying, I am here to teach God's people what God says. And as he does this, we see worship and obedience extending beyond the border of the temple into the society. They're establishing a government. They're establishing these systems and order that is reflective of what God commands in family life, in society. And the book of Nehemiah marks the beginning of the third movement. So let's, let's start working through this. Turn with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Verses one through three. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shelev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So here we go. As Nehemiah opens up, it starts with geography. He pinpoints two places on a map. The first is the place, the citadel of, of Susa, and the other is the city of Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure you probably don't have a great working understanding of, of that part of the world, but just to help, we're talking like 850 miles apart from each other on foot. 
In a car, that's about a 16-hour drive. On foot, it's going to take you, I don't, I don't even know, but a long time. And Nehemiah is positioned in, in Susa, which is modern-day Iran, and he is positioned as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who has recently conquered Babylon. We see this in verse 11. And the guy that's coming to him is coming from the land of Judah, coming from Jerusalem. It's his kinsman, Hananiah, and he comes for a visit. And when Nehemiah greets him, he, he offers this inquiry of how are things going back in the motherland? Like, how, how is the situation in, in Jerusalem faring right now? Is there any progress? I know that Zerubbabel was sent back. I knew that Ezra was sent back. Is there any headway? Now, the prospect of, of Jerusalem being rebuilt is a big deal for God's people, for people who hold on to God's covenant and promises. But because of this geographical distance, it's obvious why updates are so sparse. They, he's got no idea what's going on. They've got no phone. There's no FaceTime. And Nehemiah sits there hoping for some good news, that, that things are in, like moving up and to the right, or I guess your direction, up and to the right. That's what he's hoping for. But Hananiah delivers some bad news. He says in verse three that Jerusalem is in despicable state. The walls are broken down. The gates are on fire. He says it's shameful and Jerusalem is in trouble. There's danger lurking. Now, given what we know about the book of Ezra, you might be thinking, well, Hananiah seems like a gloomy Gus, right? Seeing the glass, the glass half empty all the time. Because what about all of this good stuff that's happened with Zerubbabel and Ezra? The, the, the temple's been rebuilt, offering, sacrifices are being offered, the law is being taught, society is being reformed. There's got to be some kind of evidences of grace to, to share. But that's not what happens. Though good work has occurred back in Jerusalem, all of that good work is in danger because as the city stands, there are no walls, and without walls, there are no protection. Now, this should be obvious to us, the significance of walls. In society, it's become a little bit debatable, and I don't want to, I'm going to hold off on all of my wall jokes for the time being. But walls provide a barrier. Walls provide security. Walls provide shelter. And you know this because your house has walls, right? It keeps uninvited people out and it keeps the people inside safe. So without these walls, without the gates, Jerusalem is vulnerable to enemy attack. And right in this moment, it's a very contentious state, geographically speaking. There's a lot of, of world crisis going on. But the Bible also refers to walls as a symbol of strength and greatness, right? The fortified cities are the cities that have tall walls. Jericho was so uh, threatening because it was a city with big walls. And in the new heavens and new earth, we're told that the city of God also has high walls with 12 gates. But here, Jerusalem stands, rather than being a great city, a fortress city, Jerusalem is pathetic, it's weak looking. Which begs the question, once again, about where is God? If God were with his people, shouldn't they look strong? Shouldn't they, they really look mighty? And so they're, they're asking, is God really here with us in Jerusalem? 
And when Nehemiah hears about the condition of Nehemiah, it, it sends him into lament. Look at verse four. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah goes into days of mourning. He's not just a little sad, like, oh, that's, so, that's a bummer. But he, he gets knocked over. It sends him reeling. In fact, in this, this time of mourning, he's probably meditating on Psalm 42, which says, my tears have become my food. He's so sad, he's so grieved, he's lost his appetite, and the only thing that he has to eat is, are, are his tears. And this is literally the case in the sense that he's fasting. He tells us he, he's fasting, which is to refrain from, a, from physical sustenance in order to seek a spiritual sustenance. What we see Nehemiah doing in verse four is basically what we saw last week in Jeremiah 29, when God tells him, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. His whole heart is going after God. Now, I don't want you to get this twisted though, because as Nehemiah is mourning, his lament is not the same thing as a hopeless pity party. In fact, what Nehemiah is doing in lamenting is the opposite of a pity party. Nehemiah is actually filled with hope, not because of the circumstances, but because of the one whom he is calling upon. Look at this in verse 5. And I said, O oh Lord, when you see the word Lord, those capital letters are like that, it means Yahweh. He's using God's covenant name. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Regardless of how bad things look in Jerusalem, regardless of the circumstances, Nehemiah is anchored in who God is. N not, a, not a manifestation of his imagination but the real God as, been, as has been revealed in his word. Now, this is a part of our life in the Christian life that's a challenge for us. As our circumstances sort of shift in an undesirable uh, direction, a lot of times we're, we're wondering, is God really good? Is he really full of steadfast love? Is he really faithful to do what he said he would accomplish? Rather than the reality of God's character determining our lives and how we live, our circumstances seem to trump that. What Nehemiah is demonstrating is somebody who's deeply rooted. It's like the Psalm 1 man. Blessed is the man. He's like a tree whose roots are, are sunk right by the river. And in this, seasons can change, situations can change, but as Christians, we know God does not. He is always faithful. He is always good. He's always abounding in steadfast love. If we want to be able to navigate life's hardships, we need to understand who God is, as the Bible says. Our ability to navigate these things is linked to our view of God. Now, in seeing God rightly, 
We start to see ourselves clearly. John Calvin speaks of this uh, in, in his book, Institutes on the Christian Faith. First, chapter, first book, chapter one, he links the two things between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And we see this exact thing happen as, as Nehemiah is re- reminded of who God is. He, the, the mirror gets held up again and he sees himself for who he is. Look at verses six and seven. As he says, appealing to God, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. See, in seeing God rightly, Nehemiah sees himself rightly. Now, he sees, he sees himself rightly on sort of a, a, a personal level, but, but first he, he indicates this sort of corporate identity among God's people. He says that there has been a, a waywardness of all of God's people, the whole people of Israel, that have been pulled into idolatry and sin, which verse 8 tells us is what led to their exile. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, right, if you're idolatrous, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now, Nehemiah doesn't just say, oh, yeah, it's, it's those guys they're the real sinners. I'm cool. I've, I've got it figured out. He, he takes onus here. He says, even I and my father's household, we have sinned. We've acted corruptly. And seeing God, he sees himself. Now, our liturgy is designed to promote the same kind of confession. Every week we come in here, we get the call to worship. Our eyes go up to see the grandeur of God. As we see God, there's this feeling. It's like, I'm not like God. He's very different than me. If his heart is, is always abounding in steadfast love, my heart is pretty fickle. If God is gracious, I, I'm pretty stingy. There's a self-realization that happens when you see God, and our liturgy is designed to, to shape us in this way both in a corporate sense where we as the people of God, we confess our sins together, but also in an individual way that I personally have broken the commands. Now, the crazy part about this whole thing is that as we see God for who he is, as I see myself for who I am, God doesn't kick us to the curb. I mean, God would be totally justified in saying, okay, you want it your way? We'll see how that works out. He could have done that. But instead, God, who is full of steadfast love, invites us back to himself. As Nehemiah recalls God's promise to Moses, he shows that there is a way to return. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. He says, but if you return to me, if you come back to me, If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, he's just saying it's, you guys are scattered everywhere. 
From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God promised to Moses, knowing full well that the Israelites would wander away, that all the good gifts would cloud their eyes so they couldn't see God right, that their faithfulness would be compromised, but God made a way for them to return back to him. How? Well, in verse nine, it says, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. Returning to God isn't merely making a confession. It's not merely admitting you did something wrong. Returning to God is an act of repentance. Repentance means to turn from going one way and go the opposite direction. So our confession, while it admits the wrongdoing, repentance is a complete turning around of the way we were going. That if we're moving towards idolatry and faithlessness, repentance means worshiping God, obeying his commands, turning away from sin and turning to God. And it's when God's people have returned to him that he restores them. Now we see this in verse nine, the same, the, the people, the place, the presence, that same motif gets repeated in verse nine, that God will gather his people to a place in Jerusalem and he will make his name dwell there. That, that's talking about the presence of God being there with his people. So this whole thing, the trajectory that they're going towards is moving closer toward an Edenic-like state where the ruins of Jerusalem, this great city that once was, is restored. It's rebuilt. But it's easy for us to, to get confused about a piece of this. It's easy for us to misunderstand what's going on here. When we see the language of, okay, well, in order, for God to, in order to get God to do what I want him to do, well, I just gotta, there's this checklist of things that I gotta start checking off. I gotta obey and, and just do the right things. But what we don't realize that is our ability to do those things is predicated on God's previous love and grace and kindness to us. To think that I can muster up anything good from my heart is a total, it just shows that I'm oblivious to my real true state of my heart. Anything good from me has to come from God. It has to be a product of what God has done in my life. Any other attempt to, to try to like obey and get right is like trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. You just can't do it. A sinful heart cannot produce righteousness. See, all of this activity that God is wanting of his people to return to him, to come back, to obey him is predicated on the covenant that God has already made and is being fulfilled. It's not our doing. It's not like we, we put a, a few things together and, and give them back to God and say, hey, look what we, you know, is this good enough? Like, will you come back now? No, it's all of God's activity. 
He's the one who called Abraham. He's the one who, who raised up Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. In fact, this whole thing, when he's speaking about, when he says this in verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What he's talking about there is the Exodus where God has established for himself a covenant people, not because they deserved it, but because God is a covenant making and keeping God. It's God's redeeming power. It's God's strong hand. It's not our obedience. It's God's power, redeeming power. We call it the resurrection power. We sing about it. It's that power at work in us that propels us towards obedience. That grace comes before the obedience. And this is the kind of God that God is, that he enters a covenant with people who are unable to keep the covenant so that he might fulfill it totally by himself. And the good work that he promised to, to bring to himself a people, a place in his presence, God gets the credit. Now this all becomes crystal clear for us when we look to the cross. We see how God fulfilled this covenant to an even greater extent, such a, such a thorough extent. It's called the new covenant. That, that Jesus is the one who fulfills our end of the obligations. He lived the righteous life. He always obeyed. Not once forsaking the giver of the good gifts. And he did it for us. And Jesus was willing to shed his blood for us to pay the price for our sin. And so it's by this, the blood of the new covenant that our sin is absolved from us as far as the east is from the west. And by God's grace, we, though we're Gentiles, most of us, I think all of us, as far as I know, are grafted in to the people of God. And then being grafted in to the people of God, the promises of God are for us that God has promised to make us a people. Ephesians chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, he's remade us. We are God's workmanship. He makes a promise of a place. Now, Jesus tells us this world's not our home. This is just a layover spot for us. But there's a, a new heavens and new earth. The, the ruins will be totally and thoroughly rebuilt. And there in the new heavens and new earth, we will get to see God face to face. The presence of God will be with us. Now, God's grace to us is right now in real time. The presence of God is here with us now. It is. The spirit of God is in you if you are a new creation. Whenever two or more are gathered, the spirit of God is here. The presence is here. But one day... I, I, so it's here right now, but it's not everywhere in our city. It's not. But one day God will make it so the whole city is covered with the glory of God as the, as the seas are covered with water. This future reality is what gives us permission to pray to God for big things to ask God to do the things that only God can do, to pray that our city 
would be as it is in heaven. To be renewed and rebuilt by God's grace. Now imagine the kind of impact that we would have as a church if we would give ourselves to the pre-work of renewing the city. If we would give ourselves to fasting and praying and seeking the welfare of our city by seeking God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have other things to do. No, we do. We gotta raise a godly family. We gotta make a living. Gotta be good neighbors, love our neighbors. Christ has loved us. There's things for us to do. Plant churches, lead missional communities, serve the poor. But the first and primary work of God's people, if we want to see any kind of of progress, any sort of uh, forward movement, we must be a praying people because prayer precedes progress. Now, a, a brief survey of church history shows that this is true. Every revival, every reformation, whether big or small, is predicated by a praying people, a people on their knees, a people seeking God. And what I want to do is invite our church into this heightened prayer in seeking God, of of making it a spiritual discipline as it is to fast and to seek God for the city's welfare for the welfare of our church, for the welfare of our families. That we would be a people ignited in real prayer. This heartfelt, glorious, repentant, covenantal petition for God to do what only God can do. I wanna leave you with one thought um, from Pastor Dane Ortland who wrote this, I tweeted this, I don't know, I saved it. It's been, on my, it's been on my desk for probably a few years at this point. He says, real prayer ignites where there is both belief and longing. Real prayer ignites where there's both belief and longing. Nehemiah believed the strong hand of God, the awesome God of heaven who keeps covenant and full of steadfast love. He believed And Nehemiah longed for the day where Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Are we a people who are giving ourselves to real prayer? Are we a people who are believing that God can do what he promises and longing for those promises to become a reality? If not, we're wasting our time. But for people who give ourselves to real prayer, there's no limit to what God might do. The glory of the Lord over the Quad Cities. Let's pray like we want it. Father, we thank you for your son, the covenant keeper, the one who upheld our end of the deal. We don't deserve it. We, what we deserve is to be in a sorry state, but your loving kindness has sought us out. It's not just that that we return to you, but you sought after us. You bring us back. We thank you, Lord, for this work that you have done, and we pray that you would continue doing it and the good work that you've began 
would come to completion, that we would see a, a renewed and sanctified city, that, that it would begin with our own hearts and with our own lives, that our prayer life would reflect the, the, both the, the belief and the longing. And we do this because our good is wrapped up in your glory. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that you would continue to reveal your glory. We thank you for this meal that we're about to partake. That the Son of God is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As, as we are confronted by our sin, our own brokenness, we have a solution in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed, his body was broken so that we would be mended back together. We thank you for such great of a Savior. Help us to live in a way that honors you, to be disciples of you who obey you, not, not as a condition to earning your approval, but because in the gospel, you sing over us. Let us to sing over you with our obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.